It's a longer passage this morning, so you can remain seated as we read. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent. And the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged. And he laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is truth. The word of the Lord. 
We are really glad to have our India team back. And just so you guys know, we almost didn't have didn't have services this week due to the uh, uh, snowpocalypse on Friday that uh, you missed out on. I mean, the snow was piled up at least to like right about here, you know, <laughs> outside on the steps. It was it was intense, but I'm glad we we're able to be together and be a family that's whole. Today, uh, we're starting a new sermon series on the lives of Elisha and Elijah and Elisha. It's going to take us over the next couple of months to kind of get through their ministries and their stories. If you know anything about their stories or if you've ever kind of read through it, the stories and ministries, uh, the events that occur are very strange. They're very odd. And they're even more strange by the very books that they occur in. They occur in the books of First and Second Kings. Now, uh, if you uh, start any series on Elijah and Elisha, you kind of have to start in the middle of the movie because that's where they show up, is right in the middle of First and Second Kings. So I think these strange stories will begin to make a little bit more sense to us if we understand First and Second Kings as a whole, just briefly. Because I do think that if we stop and connect with it for a second, it does offer us a, a perspective on our lives. So Kings is essentially a, a downward spiral. It's just a downward trajectory. It can seem a little mundane, but the basic theme is that king after king after king after king after king pursues its own things that it wants, goes by its own agenda, follows its own commands, and pursues affluence, political power, treasure, wealth, comfort. And things get worse and worse and worse. So if you start off in First Kings, you have Solomon who builds the temple, one of the great ancient wonders, or one of the wonders of the ancient world, where kings and queens would come just to behold it, just to see this kingdom that Solomon has built and to gain insight from the wisdom that he has. But then if you go all the way to Second Kings, go all the way through the story, you end up with two kingdoms, both Israel and Judah, now separated at war with one another. By the time you get to it, one has already been shipped off into exile, and now Judah is being shipped off into exile. You have a story that starts off with tremendous hope and ends in utter tragedy, completely opposite of the way they thought it was going to go. And part of that, and the reason for that, is because Kings reminds us and shows us that Israel is stuck in a deep rut of sin. They're stuck in a deep rut and habitual cycle of idolatry. And the only thing that idolatry is ever going to do is create destruction. So it's a story that starts off with tremendous hope and ends in tragedy. I think we know that cycle a little bit. We're human. We struggle with sin. We hope for freedom in our lives in a number of different ways. We try to take certain sins seriously in our lives, and we kind of can imagine what life might be like if we didn't struggle with this, and so we really pursue it. But then what's so hopeful ends up in failure. Once again, we get stuck in that same cycle of failure over and over and over again. The story of First Kings is essentially our story. So with that in mind, the stories of Elijah and Elisha starting right in the middle of this book is that it's through their stories, it's through their ministry that God comes to Israel to try to wake them up and interrupt this consistent and habitual cycle of sin and brokenness. 
This is how God comes to his people in these very strange ways, but yet he comes to them to try to wake them up. And so as we begin the series, I would say, uh, even to ask a question, what type of person might get the most out of a series like this? I would say that really two things. One is that the person who says, I actually am in a deep rut. They can finally say, maybe you've ignored that for a long time, but it's maybe just time to admit the fact that I've been in a deep cycle of sin. It doesn't have to be egregious. It doesn't have to be something major. It can be something that seems so small, but yet when you really look at it, it's very destructive and it owns a huge portion of your life. You think about it all the time and you can't stop thinking about it. And you feel like you're stuck in suspended animation. You haven't grown in righteousness and holiness for a long time. And you want some new life. The other type of person that would get, I think, the most out of these stories is the person who can say, God seems so distant. He feels so distant, and I don't know where he is. He feels distant, and he feels cold, and I can't find him. And my hope in response to that is that if I could sum up this series looking forward with an invitation, I would use the invitation of Hosea 2, where God says to Hosea about his rebellious prostitute wife, Gomer, he says, I will, God says, I will allure her into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her. And there she will no longer call me my Baal, but she will call me my husband. That that invitation is God's desire for you. You begin to turn away from the things that have you trapped and you begin to no longer say my Baal, but you are my husband. So as we begin in chapter 17, just to set it up very quickly, so we understand the context that Elijah is stepping into. King Ahab is in power. He comes to power in chapter 16. And he's uh, known with a very special accolade up to this point in verse 30 where it says that he above all else has done far more, wicked and, or far more wickedness and evil than all who were before him. So he is a pro bowler. He's an all-star at misleading and misdirecting God's people. Some of the things that he does is he rebuilds, uh, he rebuilds Jericho when it should not have been rebuilt. He disregards the own, his own story that he was a part of and begins to build his own. He sets up Asherah poles like Solomon did all throughout the kingdom. Asherah was a goddess of fertility, and he began to point to this goddess for life and misdirect the people. But the one thing that kind of really makes him surpass all the other kings before him is that he marries uh, Jezebel who we will come to find is a very sweet lady. And she is, no, she is the princess of Sidon, which is a kingdom that is north of Israel. And so King Ahab goes and he marries Princess Jezebel, and there's now this political alliance through marriage. And so, of course, King Ahab wants to keep his new bride happy, and so he says, which God do you serve? She says, I worship Baal. And Ahab says, great, I will too. And so now, Baal, Baal worship is introduced and it spreads. It spreads incredibly, like a virus throughout Israel. And one of the things, the reason why is that now, Baal worship has royal backing, royal money, royal funds, royal vestments. It has its own priesthood. It rivals the very claim and religious life that Yahweh has on his people, and they go a completely new route. There's a new God in town. And so, I would imagine if we could step back and uh, if we did a quick interview of someone, an Israelite during this time, they would say, actually, everything seems to be going really well. You know, if you look at all the news headlines, they 
talk about all of, because of this marriage alliance, this political alliance, things are going really well. We're no longer at war with each other. New opportunities are flowing in, new money, new trade routes. A whole new type of life is being opened up to us economically. All the stock market futures are pointing upward. It's a great time to invest. There's new ideas that are flowing in, new ways of thinking about the world that are novel and new and refreshing. But the one thing that we will learn about idolatry is that ultimately there's, there's always a honeymoon period with idolatry. That you do think everything is going okay. You think it's fine and nothing's going to happen. And then all of a sudden, one day, we get to chapter 17, verse 1. And everything falls apart. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 1, or verse, 1, 1 Kings 17, chapter 1. Elijah shows up whenever everybody thinks everything is just fine. And he gives a very simple prophecy. He comes to King Ahab, and he says, Thus says the Lord the God of Israel. It's not going to rain for these years until I say so. It's not even going to do, there won't even be dew on the ground. It's not going to rain for years. That's a really simple prophecy. But why drought? Why not just, you know, turn the water into blood? Why not have locusts? Why is it that God chooses drought to bring, to send Israel a message? Well, two reasons. One, as goes, as, so goes, as goes the rain, so goes Israel. A lot of rain is great. More, more food, more commerce, the economy booms when it rains. You can feed armies. You can feed legions of people when you have a lot of food. Everything depends upon how much rain you get. And if you get a lot of rain, then it allows you the opportunity to become the people you want. And so the people of Israel wanted to be a great, mighty, and powerful nation like all the other nations. So they needed a lot of rain. So God says, it's going to be, it's not going to rain for years. I'm going to take away the very thing you want that you think will give you and will allow you to become what you think will satisfy you. I'm going to take away your vibrancy. I'm going to take away everything. If you think about it just for us for a second, imagine in the United States, it didn't rain for three years. It didn't do. Even with our modern economy, that would cripple us. Inflation would go through the roof. We'd have to search for food beyond our borders in new ways. It would cripple us. So travel back 2,500 years and get to this agrarian economy where everything depends upon the rain. This is not a prophecy that's going to make people uncomfortable for a a few years. This is a prophecy that's going to decimate Israel. This is a, a prophecy of cataclysmic proportions. It's big. It's going to bring them low. And not only that, God says, I'm going to take away what you want, and I'm also going to challenge the very thing that you put your trust in. It's going to drought because you have now learned to trust in Baal. Because Baal makes these counterclaims that Baal is the, he is the God who rides on the heavens. He is the God who rides, or rides through the heavens on the clouds. He is the God of rain. He is the God of life and fertility. He is the God that sends the rains that will allow us to flourish. And so they began to put their hope and their trust and their worship in Baal, and they trusted that he would satisfy them. So God brings drought, and he attacks the very thing that they put their trust in. And he tells them, the very thing that you're putting your trust in to cope and get through life and to trust and what it would look like to flourish, I'm going to show you that it doesn't work. It doesn't work. The very thing that you've trusted in doesn't work. And that's a hard lesson to learn. 
I was watching a, or I was reading an article, and there was a short video about Andrew Zimmern. If you know Andrew Zimmern, he's the the host of uh, Bizarre Foods, that show where he goes around the world and eats street food, you know, like a scorpion on a stick, you know, things that just should not be eaten. Well, he eats them. And so that's kind of his job. But he's also very well known in the culinary world. He's a he's an accomplished chef and producer and author. And he's known particularly for just being an incredibly kind and generous man. But it's pretty ironic because his story is completely the opposite. And he tells a little bit about his story and how he got to where he was. And part of it was that he was born into a wealthy, essentially wealthy, upper middle class family in New York City. And he was introduced, because of the excess, he was introduced to drugs and alcohol at a very young age. And he was able to kind of give him that kick, that boost, and he enjoyed it. and made life a little bit more novel and new, and he got through it. And then after he graduates, he started to work in some very, started to work in the food industry, and he started to do really well, and got some jobs at some, some great kitchens in New York City. But his appetite for drugs and alcohol began to grow and grow and grow until it got to the point where he was, he was balancing both of them at the same time. He would have way too much to drink in one night, and the next morning he would wake up, and cocaine would be there to lift him back up and to get him through the day. And it was the very thing that became his crutch to get through life. And he thought everything was going fine until one day his boss comes to work and finds him completely passed out in the kitchen. They sit down and they have a long talk, and they said, you know, Andrew, it's not working out anymore. He said, and they told him he was fired. And then he goes on this long drought where he lives homeless, for years in New York City. And he has a very particular way of saying something very, very poignant, very simple phrase to capture what happened to him. He said, it got to a point where the very things I trusted in stopped working. They stopped working. The things I trusted to get me through the day and the things I looked forward to and I hoped in stopped working. And it didn't work anymore. And that is the very thing that God is telling Israel through this drought. So it's not working. The thing you put your trust in doesn't work. And the only way I can wake you up is to bring drought. And I think that for us, it's no different. We may not worship uh, bales. We may not have calves as shrines in our homes. But we've got idols all over the place. What is that thing you trust in that you can't really imagine life without? What is that thing you look forward to at the end of every week? What is that thing that you wish that everybody else would just go away so you could just have time with it? What is that thing that you know is always going to be there? You can rest and hope in. But in the end, it doesn't work. We can worship just as much in front of Netflix, and for a while... It helps us escape, but in the end, we just realize that we're still thirsty and we're still in drought because it's far easier to watch somebody else's life when we hate our own. And it's not working anymore. We were introduced to pornography at a, at a young age and it helped with loneliness for a little while, but then we got married and it only made us lonelier because it destroyed our ability to be intimate at any level. And it's not working anymore. You come to work and you stop and you think, it gave me a sense of purpose for so many years, and I worked and worked and worked and worked and worked. But when you really judge A to B after all those hours that you put in, you really realize it didn't really offer you that much other than a few more dollars. And that sense of purpose just isn't there anymore because it stopped working. Or the person who struggles with materialism, you know, you, um, and we all do in some degree, but you, and you want that forever home. 
that home that makes you stop looking, that home that will give you that rest. If you could just get everything in the house fixed just how you want it and looking perfect and beautiful, then you can finally rest. But you're always searching, always looking, always finding something new to decorate with or to make it more beautiful. And in the end, you just realize that you have a house, but you don't have a home. It's not working anymore. God brings drought upon us, and he intervenes graciously through drought. Because drought is how God intervenes and shows us that the thing that we put our trust in doesn't work. So if you're in drought this morning, I think we all know that when we feel thirsty and we know there's a deep craving that's not being satisfied by the things that we turn to, we feel that drought, it's very easy to say that God is distant. God is far from us. But if this story is any indication, it is when he is most near. Because there's two responses to drought. The first is that we just double down. We double down like Israel will in this chapter, but also in the next chapter. Whenever this doesn't work, then they keep trying, and they, this doesn't work anymore, it stops working, so we try this. And then this stops working, and we try this. Always trying to satisfy, and every time we feel that thirst, that thirst actually causes us to push God away. But it's in this story that we see something different from Elijah. That it's in his thirst that we see something new. We see what drought is supposed to do within us. Because after Elijah gives a prophecy, he goes off into the wilderness east of the Jordan. And he lives there by a small brook that God provides, and he waits for the drought. He sits there and he waits. And the prophecy comes true, because it says in verse 7 that the brook dries up because there was no rain in the land. You have to remember that Elijah isn't... um, uh, he doesn't give the prophecy and then go live in a garden oasis on a lawn chair. He gives this prophecy knowing that he has to live in the drought as well. He has to go thirsty. He doesn't know where his water is going to come from. He doesn't know where his food is going to come from. He completely goes into it. It's probably an unknown. He just knows it's not going to rain. But when the brook dries up and his source of satisfaction goes away, what happens? Well, in verse 8, God says, go to Zarephath, and a widow will provide for you. And Elijah gets up, and he goes. The difference is, is that when the brook dries up, Elijah is obedient. He doesn't get up and start to then satisfy and look for all of these sources that he can find to satisfy his thirst. When he's thirsty, he listens to God, and he hears his voice, and he's obedient, and he trusts that God will provide for him. So my point is this. Either thirst causes us to push God away and we double down on everything else or if this story is true with Elijah is that God actually uses thirst to move us to new places and to move us forward you are not going to really have a vibrant relationship with the Lord whenever everything is going well you're just not because you have no need but God comes in and he uses that thirst so that we might draw near to him but yet it's strange we either take that thirst and we push God away or we draw near. But it's in that thirst that God says, I want to draw you to a new place. Trust me, I'll provide for you. In the rest of the chapter, we have three very strange events of what it looks like whenever Elijah trusts God in this drought. Three very strange stories indeed. We're going to look at them very briefly and then we're going to slam them all together because I think that all of them are teaching us the exact same lesson. The very first one we see in five and six After Elijah gives the prophecy, 
he goes off into the wilderness, a very barren wilderness that God tells him to flee to, and he's fed by ravens, unclean birds, birds that are forbidden to touch because they're unclean. God provides food for him from just about the most unexpected source. In a harsh and desolate place, God provides for him God provides for him in the most unexpected of ways. That's number 1. Number 2, Elijah tell or God tells Elijah when the brook dries up, he says I want you to go to Zarephath and there's going to be a widow there. Zarephath is in the heart of Sidon, Jezebel's home country, which is, you know, the belly of the beast. It's the heart of Baal worship where God is going to flex and show who's truly God. And he says you're going to find a widow there and she's going to she's going to take care of your needs. So he does indeed come across a widow and she's gathering sticks. Such a sad picture. Because she's gathering sticks and Elijah comes up to her and he he asks for bread and for water. And you know the drought at this point is now in full effect because she says, she says, sir, I don't have enough. I'm gathering just a few sticks so I can burn what small resources I have left into cakes because I only really have enough food for me and my son to have one more meal and then we're going to die. This is our last supper. And Elijah says, make me a cake anyways. Give me the last that you have. Just do it. But don't be afraid because there will be enough flour and there will be enough oil and they won't run out. It's in drought that God often asks us to give us what is truly most precious to us. He says, give all that to me and I will provide for you. Give me what's most precious to you. And she does. The widow trusts him. And sure enough, we have number two. Verses 15 and 16, it says that all of the years of the drought, the flour and the oil did not run out. And the widow ate for many days her and her household Then we get to number three, the third event. We get to the widow's son in verse 17, and he becomes ill and he dies. Strangely, not out of nowhere. You have the story of God's provision, and then all of a sudden, the boy dies. And in verse 18, you hear the cry of the widow as she cries out to Elijah. She says, is this all you're going to do is come to my house, and because you're here, the gaze of the Almighty has followed you here? And the gaze of the Almighty has fallen upon my house and has seen all of my sin. And now you're punishing me because of my sin. I think that is an easy trap to fall into when we feel dry and in drought. Is that we feel that one of the hardest things to do is actually trust in God's goodness. One of the hardest things to do is trust that God actually wants something good for us. And it's far easier to trust that God is punishing us that he's abandoned us. It's far easier to think that he's punishing us because he's cold. But the truth is, is that he's not really punishing this widow. The truth is, he wants to give her something far more precious. Because what you see is something that has not happened in the scriptures up to this point. Elijah takes the boy, takes him up to his inner chamber, and he stretches out over the boy three times, and he prays. And then the boy wakes up. He's raised from the dead. 
God works in the widow's house in a way that he has never moved up to that point because that is the first recorded resurrection in the entire scriptures. That God out of nowhere provides the most unexpected resource of life. So we have three very strange stories. And at the end of it, in verse 24, you hear that the widow has found that very precious thing when she says that now I know that everything you say is true and that the words of your God are truth. She not only has the new life of her son restored to her, but she now has a new life because she's found a new God. Truly. And so, what do these three things actually teach us? What are these three stories? You have the ravens that feed Elijah out of nowhere. You have the flour and the oil that if the widow would just give what she has left, then it won't run out. And then you have this story that Elijah prays for something that had never even happened before. And the widow's son is raised from the dead. What do all of these things teach us that God wants us to begin to do in drought? I think it's quite simple. All of these stories teach us that God causes drought in our lives so that we would begin to trust in unseen resources. God causes drought so that we would begin to trust that he will provide something completely new. Something beyond what we expected. Something beyond what we can really imagine. God causes drought so that we would just let go of our idols and trust that God will provide for you even when you don't see how. Because the truth is, if you have an idol, everybody does. If you have one, it's really hard to imagine life without it. That's why they're idols. We cling to them. There's something about our lives that it's very hard to let these things go, and it feels very hard to give them up. And it's a lot easier sometimes just to settle for the satisfaction of whatever it is we idolize than it is to trust that God will bring something better. And yet these stories tell us that that is exactly what we should do and that it's worth it, that God will provide something even when we don't see how. God will provide you a resource that is far better and far greater. I was, uh, and it's very threatening indeed, I was reading a story one time about a guy who was very similar to uh, Matt's story during confession. And he said, uh, it was a very similar story where uh, in, he was a middle-aged guy and he just began to just drink a little too much. It started to get a little too easy. I'm going to celebrate it was a good day. It was a rough day. I'm going to take the edge off a little bit. I always found a reason to do it. Then it got slowly to where he began to do it more and more and more and more and more, and it stopped working. And he was in counseling, and the counselor just said to him, let me just ask you a couple of questions. Tell me how it feels. How do you feel if I said, uh, what if you stopped drinking for a week? And the man said, eh, it's pretty hard, but I think that would be good for me. I do. That'd be good. I probably should. The counselor said, Okay. He said, well, how does it make you feel if I said, what if you stop drinking for a month? And he said, well, that'd be really hard, um, I guess, if you think it's best. And then the counselor said, okay, well, how does it make you feel if I said, stop drinking for a whole year? And the man looked at the counselor for a long time, and he said, I feel threatened. I feel threatened. You're taking something away that's very precious to me. And the counselor said, 
It's because you have no clue how much your life is built on it. And at the threat of it being taken away, you feel threatened. God comes into our stories and he asks for what is most precious to us. But the truth is, the only way you're going to break that cycle and begin to step away from those um, habits of trying to get them to satisfy you is when you begin to trust that God provides resources beyond what you can see, beyond what you really know. He invites you to give up those things and to trust him. And yet it's so hard to imagine life beyond our idols because they become so normal. They become as common and as unthought of as the air that we breathe. And it's hard to imagine how new life can happen, yet I'm sure it was very difficult to imagine Elijah when he was praying for the resurrection that it could possibly happen because it never had before. And he was praying for something completely new and God heard him. I said, yeah, I will bring new life. This morning, as we, as we close, the only way you will begin to put away those idols is when you begin to trust that God will truly provide something better. The only way the alcoholic is going to stop drinking is when he actually begins to trust that it's far better to find yourself in Christ than it is at the bottom of a bottle. The person who struggles with materialism, it's far, easier to, or it's, it's far easier to think that we can be satisfied by the things we buy, but they only will stop doing that whenever they realize that to be found in Christ allows us to feel a lot newer than anything that, any new object that we can purchase online. Or the person who just struggles with money and wants more and more and more, the only way they will begin to trust is when they begin to trust that Jesus truly provides something that's far more valuable than every dollar they make. Our idols are the very things that God wants to challenge. And it's in our idols where we begin to really question what it is our life is based upon. But this is not an old question. This is not an old, just old, old Testament idea. It's a New Testament idea. That ultimately, the one thing that's available to you that nobody ever saw coming, the one true unseen resource is Christ himself because nobody ever expected God to climb down off of his throne, become a baby, climb on a cross, and die and rescue us from Satan's sin and death. And when he comes, he teaches that same message that if we would follow him, there are resources available to us that are beyond our imagination. That he says, I have food that you don't even know of. He tells the disciples to start passing out loaves and fishes because they're not going to run out. And he, tells, and he allows Peter to get out of the boat. And Peter finds himself, when he trusts, he finds himself standing on a far firmer foundation than he ever expected. He walks on water. There are resources available to you that are beyond our understanding, beyond our comprehension, but you can only find them when you're willing to let go of those idols. Embrace the drought. Recognize that you're thirsty. And follow him out into the wilderness and let him satisfy you. Hear that invitation this morning from Christ himself, calling you out to the wilderness so that he might speak tenderly to you, so that you may no longer say, my veil, but that you might say, my husband. Are you willing to go? Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you and ask that you would take your knife and do surgery on our hearts. You'd make us bleed that we might, might be wounded by your spirit. 
so that we can wake up to the reality of the idolatry in our lives. We have all trusted in something else other than you. And we all do. Would you expose what those things are to us? Expose to us what it is that we feel threatened if you take it away. And it feels like death to live without. Expose those things to us so that you might allow us to hear your promises. That you ask us for what we hold most precious so that you can give us something far more precious still. Help us to let go of the things that we cling to. And help us to trust that what you offer is truly better than anything else we could try to use to satisfy us. We thank you for the good news of Christ our Lord, who is an endless wellspring of life and light. We desperately need you, Jesus. We ask all these things in your mighty and powerful and life-giving name. And everybody said,